Special bulletin here on October 25th, 1599, Sir Edward Kennel, who was Commander-in-Chief of the English Navy, concocted a marvelous punch for his ship's companies. The recipe, according to La Russe, is 80 casks of brandy, 9 casks of water, 25,000 limes, 80 pints of lemon juice, 1,300 pounds of sugar, five pounds of nutmeg, and 300 biscuits, plus a large cask of malaga. This enormous brew was prepared in a gigantic marble basin to which had to be, it had to be covered so the rain wouldn't dilute it. The serving was done by a ship's boy sailing in the punch in a rosewood boat. To serve the 6,000 guests, they had to keep replacing the boys who became bagged and passed out from the fumes every 15 minutes or so. I just thought you ought to know that <laughs> that these guys knew about Whoopi. Hey, you know, speaking of Whoopi, uh, this is the week for it, of course. This is the uh, uh, Christmas, New Year's week, and uh, there is no question about it. That everybody in show business is agreed on one thing. There is nothing deader, done than Christmas week. Now, that week between Christmas and New Year's, this is the gigantic Sahara of the of the whole year of showbiz. You know, one of the, one of the saddest stories I ever heard was the time Peter, uh, you know, Peter and Marion in the morning here, Peter Lynn Hayes. I'm riding in a plane, see, with Peter Lynn Hayes, and uh, we're coming back from the West Coast. And don't ask me what we were doing on the West Coast. It's a long and sordid story, anyway. I'm flying in this plane, see, and, and Peter Lynn Hayes looks out, and we are flying out over the Badlands. You know, the Dakota Badlands, and I'll tell you, they really look bad. I'll tell you, they, they, they were looking bad, man, bad, real bad, as they say, you know, the biz, real bad. And you could look down, you saw that bleak countryside stretching all the way, looked like it stretched all the way to Canada, you know. And you could look out the other side of the plane. It looked like it stretched all the way to the South Pole. It's nothing but rocks and dark caverns and and, and ancient, uh, uninhabitable peaks. We were flying over the Badlands. Long pause. Peter looks out. And he's looking down. I'm looking out. And finally he says, you know, that reminds me of the time I played... Peoria in Christmas week. <laughs> He's looking down there. I said, what do you mean, Peter? And you could just see the sadness around his eyes. He says, yes, it looks like Peoria in Christmas week. 
And so, wherever you might be, all showbiz compatriots, all of you who know just exactly what kind of particular and very, very singular hell that showbiz people go through at various times of the year, and don't think we are any exception to the rule, wherever we, wherever we see them, wherever we see thee, we salute thee, and uh, bring me up a little whoopee music there. set that down because I think we're, we're going to need that on a night like this uh, with the slush hanging thick and heavy here in Fun City and uh, we are just now coasting into a new year you know it's uh, let's see what is the date now <laughs> you know I've got a watch Don that's so bad that even the date on the calendar part of it is wrong half of the time you know, I don't mind it being five minutes off now and again, or stopping occasionally, but you know the little calendar window? It keeps saying that it's September. However, uh, let's see, this should be the 27th, is it? The 27th. That means that we have just, let's see, how many days are in December? 31? 31 days has December. That means that we have just three, four days left of 1966. And boy, have you, you know, when you, uh, some guy wrote me a note here, and he says, Shepard, he's in the f uh, physics department of a uh, university here in this area. He's an instructor there, and he says, Shepard, from time to time, your prophecies astound me. I continually listen to you and think that they're too wild to be credited and then fall over when they come true. For example, Shepard, I still possess a tape of a program of yours which you did in May of 1961, in which you were discussing the outbreak of picketing, demonstrations, etc., and reminded your listeners that you had made such a prediction several years before, that there would be picketing and there would be demonstrations and so on, when nothing could have seemed more unbelievable in this country. And then you said, in May of 1961, and I quote, he's quoting here, what next? And then he goes on to quote Shepard, well, let's see. We haven't had a good assassination in a long time. He says, this was in May of 1961. He says, what prompts this letter is your discussion of the feminine counterpart of Playboy with uh, truck driver pinups. You remember when I did that bit? You know, when I, when I talked about that, Don, that, that eventually when, when the sexes finally, you know, the big battle of the sexes is finally joined, that there have to be female versions of Playboy, you know, after all, what is Playboy devoted to? Playboy, like almost all male magazines, is devoted to worshipping the female in one way or another. Uh, have you noticed that almost all female magazines are devoted to worshipping the female in one way or another? In other words, all magazines really are devoted to that one subject. You know, boy, women are fantastic. And so the only time that I will concede that women have achieved what we would call uh, equality 
is when they begin to develop male worship magazines that they themselves look at, you know, pictures of naked men and <laughs> lying on rugs and uh, picture, you know, with a with a pin up, with the with the uh, center fold out. This guy writes me, he says, well, Shepard, you did that bit. Now, I'm just reminding you that I did this bit, oh, it must have been uh, three or four years ago, something like that. And he says, what prompts this letter is your old discussion, which I have in one of my tapes, of the female counterpart of Playboy, truck driver, pinups, and so on. He says, well, I read in the magazine Atlas, which is a worldwide magazine, by the way, uh, for December, and Atlas is a review of world press comment, an article translated from a magazine in Paris. And the burden of the article is a new Swedish magazine. It had to happen in Sweden. It says, apparently the Swedish chicks are bugged because they're not being treated equally in the Skin magazine line. Therefore, they are launching a new magazine called Expedition 66, the first magazine of pornography for women. <laughs> he says, there are some quotes about the great struggle for sexual equality from the editors, a Mrs. Nina Esten, a blonde in her late 40s, together with complaints about the difficulties of getting suitable pictures. In other words, film studios wouldn't let her have nude pictures of male stars, although they hand out plenty of female flesh shots. This is, however, but trivia. The neo-feminists are going all the way. Eva Moberg, writing in Expression uh, 1966, November 1965, describes her plans for the ultimate girl magazine. It's called Playgirl. With a fidelity of imitation worthy of the Japanese, she takes over everything in Playboy for a public hungering for muscles and wavy hair. I quote at length. Would you please give me a little of that whoopee music that you just played there, Don? Just bring it on there quietly behind me. We're, we're saluting the, the whoopee element in uh, all of mankind. Here is a quote from a lady writing about her new, her new girl magazine that's uh, pornography for women. Quote, if you're driving through Sunsvall on Route 4, don't forget to fill up on the first gas station on the right as you come out of town. If you're lucky, you'll be served at that gas station by 19-year-old Svante Lundgren. Mr. September, this young man packs the cutest 82 kilos that we have seen north of Stockholm. <laughs> Sounds just like you, Hefner stuff, wasn't it? He's not planning on a career in the movies, nor does he have any plans of working as a puppy, quote the masculine equivalent of the bunnies and the future playgirl clubs. He's happy in his job, and for his parents, he's a ray of sunshine. In the summers, he's a swimming instructor, and in the winter, he teaches skinning, skin diving. His idea of a good time? Well, it's a candlelit dinner with a girl who can keep up a good conversation. Perhaps a day will come when he'll mean everything to a girl like that. At least that's his dream. The prospects seem encouraging, to judge from the close-up camera studies in this monthly supplement that comes along with this particular issue. Uh, we, quote, we quote our correspondent, this is no parody, but a serious effort. All right, that's enough of that thing. Now, see, that's the... Once again, now the reason I'm reading this is that uh, I am preparing my list of predictions for 1967. And uh, I predict some wild things in 1967. Of course, every year brings wilder things. And it's, been, it's really been this way since the first moment that Og climbed out of the mud 
and uh, took a look at the, you know, I, I think this must have been one of the great turning points in the history of the race, you know, the race of mankind itself. That moment when Og, sitting there by the shores of this antediluvian lake, sitting there scrunched down on his haunches, looking out over that gray fastness. And of course, in those days, they didn't even have trees, Don. There weren't trees. They didn't have clouds. Everything was gray, and a cold wind blew in from the north continually. It was long before Miami Beach was open to the public. It was long before Howard Johnson even came over the horizon. And by the way, I saw a very provocative sign in the double E train the other day. Somebody had scrawled in black marking crayon on one of the sliding doors of the subway, Howard Johnson lives. This is a question that I've often considered myself. Is Howard Johnson an abstract? Or is he a real being who dispenses eternally to all the hungering public clams and 28 flavors with equal largesse to all? Or is he but a figment of an old-time morality? Howard Johnson, however, lives. And so Og and Charlie scrunched down in this ancient antediluvian silt, looking out over that that lost and gone lake of our ancestral beginnings. As the wind howled, century after century they sat. Mankind was slowly evolving, although Og and Charlie did not know it. Slowly mankind was rising up from the vast mire of the beasts of the field and the fishes of the sea. And that gray sun marched from east to west, and then blackness, and then marched again from east to west, and then blackness, century after century, Og and Charlie scrunched down there in that mud, and occasionally Og would get up and slowly waddle down to the shore to scoop up a few clams. Clams provided the basic feed of early man as, by the way, witnessed the evidence of the midden heaps found in ancient man sites throughout Switzerland and France. And he would smack them together. <laughs> the sound of man sucking clam from cracked shell is an ancient one. <laughs> and then came that moment, that moment of change, that, that for forever and ever left man a different creature that forever and ever raised him above the level of the turtles and the squirrels and the snakes and the camels and the giraffes and the horses and even the cockroaches. Og sat for a long time on this historic day, looking out over the gray waters. And an idea was beginning to slowly evolve in that ancient vestigial brain, that small burgeoning gland, which was later to create God knows how many horrors, that brain, at that time only the size of a small walnut, a gray, misty idea was coming out of the miasmic fog of the past. And suddenly, without knowing what he was about to do, Og slowly turned and faced Charlie. Harry, he too scrunched down 
with his back to the wind, the ancient, unfriendly winds. And Og spoke thusly. Thus gaining Charlie's attention, Charlie slowly turned. You see, reaction times were very slow in those days because the brain was so tiny. The muscles were large, but the brain was tiny. Which reminds me, this is W.O.R., New York. The brain was tiny. And uh, Charlie slowly wheeled and looked at Og. Meaning what? What you say? And then Og came out with it. He's not... Yeah, it's not like the old days. And that was the first time it had been said. It's not like the old days. Charlie sat for a moment, stunned by the immensity of the idea, and then slowly began to realize that what Og had said was true. It was not like the old days. And it was the first time this this epical statement had been made. In fact, no other creature on the face of the globe has ever said it. There is nothing on record that ever that ever shows that a giraffe ever once looked over the great crowd of giraffes that he was hanging around with in the veldt and said, it's not like the old days. The zebra, too, has never noticed this. Only man... And so, as we, give me a little of that whoopee music down, as we move into 1967, as we move into a new year, as we now enjoy the last four days of a fast-disappearing 1966, there will never, ever again be another 1966. And in just a few short moments, in fact, it's not too long now before it'll be midnight, There'll be just three days left of 1966. But don't worry, kiddies, there will be a 1967. There will be a 1968. There will be a 1969. There will be a 3148. There will be a 7266. So don't worry, kiddies, there's a lot more to go. Bring it up there, Tom. And so tonight we salute Og. We salute Charlie, wherever he might be, and his great epic-making discovery... Things ain't like they used to be. Hey, Don, can I ask you a technical question for a minute? Who sang like that? There was a popular singer, big deal, in the early days of radio, and, and uh, my mother had some records of this guy, and she used to play them all the time. Who used to say, do you know his name? Who was it that sang like that? Just the, the way I was just singing. 
You never heard any singing like that before? I'm just curious. There was a guy, and he played a banjo, I think. And he used to sing like that. No, really, he was very popular. Now, let's see. Uh, all right, okay, what happened? He chickened out, huh? All righty. Let's see. Oh, yeah, yeah, before we go any further, now, now look, look. We've been getting letters from people all over Jersey for a long time, kids and people and so on, about uh, my book, In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. It seems that a lot of small Jersey bookstores are either continually running out of it or else they don't have it in the first place. And a lot of people would like to have their book autographed and they'd like to meet me to have a you know big argument and all that kind of stuff. And tomorrow afternoon at 4 o'clock, now listen carefully, if you're living around in the Plainfield area, tomorrow afternoon at 4 p.m., that's Wednesday, December 28th. I am going to be at the Book House. I repeat, that's the name of the place. The Book House at 178 East Front Street in Plainfield, NJ. And uh, this is a bookstore, of course. And if you've been planning to buy this book, or if you're a kid and you've got 4 or $5 that somebody gave you for Christmas, and you would like to spend it on a copy of my book, I would be more than delighted to write something obscene. I mean, I'd be more than delighted to write something nice in the front of it, you know, and that dedicate it to you or uh, and uh, do whatever you care to have me do with it. Now, that is going to be tomorrow at 4 o'clock. Now, I repeat so that immediately, you know what's going to happen. About uh, Friday, I'm going to get about 500 letters from people around Plainfield saying, why didn't you tell us? Now, I'm telling you, and this is the only time we're going to say it, Tomorrow at 4 o'clock, that's Wednesday, I repeat, Wednesday, at 4 o'clock, that's 4 p.m., not 4 a.m., 4 p.m., December 28th, we are going to be in Plainfield, hear that? Plainfield, New Jersey, the Book House, 178 East Front Street. And any of you there, uh, that's at 4 o'clock, it's, it's in time after school, in fact, there's no school this week, so what the heck? At 4 o'clock, we'll see you there. And if you're a kid, you don't even have to buy a book. Just come around, you know. And uh, we'd like to yell and holler. We may even have a few in God we trust all others pay cash buttons to hand out. But uh, if you'd like to pick up a copy of the book and you've been having trouble getting it, and if you'd like to have it autographed and so on, I would be more than delighted to do it. Again, that's the Book House, 178 East Front Street in Plainfield, New Jersey. Okay? That's tomorrow, Wednesday. Oh, and speaking of uh, Wednesday and uh, and various uh, things, we have also here a note from Rover. Uh, I'm going to do a Rover commercial here now. And uh, a lady wrote me a note, uh, one of these, you know, these nice type ladies. She said, you know, Mr. Shepard, I never notice automobiles. In fact, I could not tell uh, a Jaguar from a Mark III tank. But... Uh, the other day, I was walking along the street here in Englewood, New Jersey, when I noticed this most attractive automobile. It was really quite attractive. And I walked up to it. It was at a stoplight, and I noticed it said 2000 TC on it. By George, Mr. Shepard, it was a Rover. And I want to tell you that this automobile looked just like the sort of car that one could leap into and drive across the country and have a wild fling in. <laughs> Well, uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Baby, wild flings have to do with the condition of your glands. Have very little to do with what kind of a car you're in. 
However, uh, thank you for the unsolicited uh, testimonial. And for those of you who have never seen the Rover 2000 TC, which is a magnificent English automobile, and uh, by the way, considered by many to be in the Rolls-Royce class, and that is no exaggeration, we would be delighted to send you pictures of this paragon among chariots of the 1960s. Just send us a note here to uh, Rober, W-O-R, and we'll send these things along. And uh, by the way, no uh, no salesman is going to call and bang on your door and say your Rover's here. Nothing like that. They'll just send you these pictures. Oh, and one more. Oh, yeah, we have Grump here with us tonight. Grump, Grump, Grump. My old friend Roger Price's great magazine, and it is really taking off all over the country. I suppose uh, a few of you read about Grump recently. Wasn't it in time? Yeah, had a big piece in time about Grump, yeah. And this is a true humor magazine. I mean, it's not a bugged magazine. Uh, in fact, I'm quoting it here. It says, uh, Grump is a magazine for people who uh, are, are bugged. They know something's wrong, but they can't tell what. So if you have not seen Grump magazine, you be sure to pick up the Christmas issue. Uh, you'll find it's still on the stands. And by the way, the distributor didn't get them out in time for Christmas, which means they'll be taking them back real quick. So if you'd like to pick up the great Christmas issue, and I have a piece in it. There is a piece by Gene Shepard in this thing. Uh, you go down to your newsstand right now and pick it up. And one more note, by the way. Uh, if you are looking for something that you would like to send to your kid as a little kind of special holiday gift, if he's off at college or someplace, if you would like to let him know that you're still with it, Boy, I'll tell you, you just send him a subscription to Grump, and this thing comes every every month, 12 full issues, for only 4 bucks. It is a very funny magazine. I, I personally recommend it. And uh, if, you'd, if you'd care to uh, subscribe to it, you just send it off to me here. And by the way, enclose a $4 check. Just send the, uh, the subscription. Just say Grump in care of Gene Shepard. And that's a W-O-R, New York, New York. Grump, G-R-U-M-P, P-P-P, Grump. In care of Gene Shepard, W-O-R, New York. And you make the check out to Grump. That's all. Just Grump. And we have a little Grump here that will countersign it. And very shortly, you'll be getting uh, your, your issue every month. That is if you have trouble with your book stand. And a lot of people do. Grump. All right. Oh, yeah, 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 Gene. And, and I, and I wanna, don't want to forget this. All this week... All this week, uh, we are live, when I say we, that's an editorial me. All this week, I am live at the Limelight downtown. And if you have been threatening to come down to the Limelight and you can't get down on a Saturday night or can't make reservations or something like that, you come on down to the Limelight, down on Sheridan Square. That's straight down 7th Avenue South. If you're a college kid, they've got special prices uh, they've got the whole thing set up down there, so it'll be much easier to go down and see us uh, during the week. And I'm doing a special live show down there every night, down at the Limelight. That means tonight, that means tomorrow night, Wednesday night, that means Thursday night, and Friday night. I'll be down there live as a big, fat, old, speckled, rotten, crummy bird uh, down in the Limelight. And the show goes on about 9.30 down there. And if you would like to make reservations, because the big crowd's coming down, if you would like to make reservations, make sure that you're going to get a seat. Just call them at Oregon 5-2212. You can call them tonight and tell them what night you'd like to come down. If you'd like to bring a whole crowd down there, great. 
And uh, incidentally, any of you, uh, don't be ashamed to bring your books down there. A lot of people seem to be a little hesitant about that. Bring your books down. I'd be glad to autograph them down there. A lot of people come down and they say, well, I was embarrassed and all that. I love it, you know. The, the number is Oregon 52212. And incidentally, there are still a few openings for New Year's Eve reservations. We've got a fantastic show all lined up for New Year's Eve. You know what I've got, Don? I've got one of these big velvet swings uh, all set up. And we've got three surplus bunnies from the Playboy Club that, uh, well, they're discard. Well, they're nice. They're, they're, there's still a lot of use left in them, you know. And we've got the three, three bunnies, and we've got this big red velvet swing. We've got mirrors in the wall, you know, that kind of thing. You've seen that kind of show, Don. And uh, we've got a marimba band, and we've got the beautiful confetti. We've got the machines that squirt confetti out of people. We've got horn-blowing machines. You know, in this day and age, uh, people... You know how people are. They want everything done for them. I, I think that's only right and proper with all the machines available. They've got horn-blowing machines now, Don, that uh, blow paper horns, wear paper hats, and, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be wonderful. It blows confetti on them. I'm going to do my famous New Year's Eve pantomime in which I salute the incoming year, 1967. And in pantomime, I predict the horrors to come. It's beautifully done. I wear plastic laurel leaves, and I come out dressed like, like Zero Mostel in the... And uh, who's that lady I'm waiting for? It's uh, no, no lady. It's my dachshund. It's a great, great show. And uh, I will also, by the way, I'll also tell my famous story, which I've threatened to tell for a long time. It's the story about the three Franciscan monks, the Third Avenue Irish bartender, and the bow-legged dachshund. It's a fantastic story. So uh, if you would like to make reservations for the New Year's Eve show down at the Limelight, you just call them at Oregon 52212. But I'll be down there live every night this week. Now, would you please uh, bring on a little more of that whoopee music, Don? Just a little bit more of that whoopee music there. Just a little. Very good. All right, hold it there. Hold it there. Hold it there. Hold it there. Whoopee. That's whoopee. You know, that's a great word. It's too bad that the word whoopee has uh, disappeared from the lexicon. And what, what is the... Uh, I don't think there's a contemporary word to that. You know, I, I really don't. Uh, I don't think there is a word that has any parallel to whoopee. <laughs> you know, I can I can remember. Don, do you ever do you remember anybody actually hollering whoopee? You actually heard somebody holler whoopee? You really do? Well, I, I remember uh, as long as we're on that subject of the word whoopee. Has anybody got a dictionary out there? A big Oxford or a big Webster unabridged, the big dictionary. I'm just curious whether or not the word whoopee is listed in the dictionary, and if it is listed in the dictionary, what is the definition of it, the actual definition? Has it made it as an actual word? W-H-O-O-P-E-E is the way it's spelled, whoopee. Whoopee. I, speaking of whoopee, I remember as a little kid, now let's, I'm going to go into trivia here now. As a little kid, I, I was a great fan of the comic strips. I think every kid uh, goes through that phase, you know, when the only thing he looks at is uh, comic books or comic strips, and that's about the extent of it. And there was a comic strip that continually had whoopee parties in it. 
that the Whoopi Party, and, the, and they used to use that phrase in the comic strip, the Whoopi Party was part of the strip. Now, I'll, I'll give you a clue. I'll give you a, an important clue, and that is that this strip is still running. This strip is still in business. What was the strip that had Whoopi? Well, what's going on in there, hon? What was the strip that had Whoopi parties listed, or not listed, as a, as a major part of the strip? In fact, I remember, uh, and it just seems to stick right in my mind, I would love to have a, a copy of this or a reprint of it. But I remember one scene in which the strip, it was a whole big strip. I mean, the guy, the guy did away with the panels on this particular, uh, this particular day. And the strip consisted of one single picture of an enormous party. And it was the day after, it was New Year's Day, as a matter of fact, that this strip came out. And it was a fantastic party. And it was like at about 2 o'clock in the morning of the party when everybody was uh, bagged and they were, uh, it was just complete chaos, the whole strip. And you saw feet sticking out from under the, from under the uh, sofas. You saw a lady's shoe stuck up in the chandelier. You know, all that kind of stuff. And you saw the, the curtains were hanging down. You saw big drifts of confetti in the corner, and busted paper hats and horns and cigar butts and broken glasses and bottles and smoke hanging up in the ceiling. And it was just about 4 o'clock in the morning, like, you know, when the party was just busted up. And you could see uh, some, guy, some guy's hand. You saw the door open into the john. You could see the bathtub. And you see a hand hanging out of the, out of the bathroom. It's laying flat. <laughs> now, I, I wonder if any of you, if any of you can tell me, and it's amazing how that strip has changed over the years. I mean, this strip used to be really, in, a, in some ways, it used to be the, uh, the advocate of... Uh, I suppose you can say wildness, anti-establishmentism. It was the advocate that strip was. And today, that strip has become almost the very epitome, the paragon of the American family strip. Now, now I'm just, just asking you can, you, can you guess what strip I'm talking about? Are you listening? Can you guess what strip I'm talking about? You don't know. Well, do you know? Now, it's still running. Huh? I can hear you. Say it again. No, 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 not Mary. No, this was before Mary Worth. No, this was back in the days when uh, they did not have the kind of strips which we have today. Well, by the way, are you aware that Mary Worth, uh, various strips like that, Apple Mary and so on, are, are peel-offs of the old radio soap operas that, uh, that the guy who originated that kind of script, that kind of strip, comic strip. In fact, I know him. His, his name is Alan Saunders. Uh, he's the guy that created Mary Worth. That he got the idea... Did you know that he got the idea from Mary Worth from listening to soap operas? And he realized that, uh, that there was a market for a soap opera kind of comic strip. And Mary Worth really was an early soap opera. But this, uh, this came out of strips when, when, uh, when the days, when, when, they, when they used to concentrate on being funny. I mean, the days when the Katzenjammer kids. And, uh, huh? No, 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 no. Little Abner, no, Little Abner is a more sophisticated kind of fun. Uh, the, uh, to me, Al Cap never really has fun with his characters. There's something, something vaguely bugging Cap all the time. 
And I'm talking about complete, unabashed, innocent wowee, you know, that kind of fun. Just, uh, you know, just uh, there it was. And the whole strip that day was cut out. Now, how do I remember this thing? I'll tell you how I remember it. Because my mother and father, when I was a little kid, were continually going to whoopee parties. They, they, there was a thing they called the whoopee party. And they would go to this thing. And now that I think back on it, in fact, I... I I even asked her one day about this. My mother was what they call in the, uh, you know, when, when you're reading uh, uh, old social histories of America and all that, my mother was obviously a flapper. She was what they called a flapper. And I, <laughs> I remember one time asking my mother just a few years ago, you know, I'm reading all this stuff about the, the you know, about those days in the, the 20s and all that. And, I, you know, this is like such fantastic ancient history. That it's it's like uh, it's like out of another era, and I remember calling my mother, you know, and I says, "Hey, mom, uh, how did it feel to be a flapper?" And she laughed. Hey, well, <laughs> I says, "Well, what was it like being a flapper, mom? I mean, were you a flapper?" And she said, "Yes, I guess so." So, well, what, what what did it feel like being a flapper? Kind of silly. I said, "What do you mean silly, mom?" She says, "What well, just?" Kind of silly. All we ever did was go to parties. So we had whoopee parties all the time. I says, well, Ma, did you wear short dresses and all that? She says, of course. I says, well, w did you wear those flat up and down dresses with those funny little hats? The, the, the women, like Betty Boop? And she says, yes, yes, that's, that's right. I says, well, Ma, did, did Dad play a ukulele? She says, no, a banjo. <laughs> You know, there was the whole thing, you know, the old man playing a banjo, my mother wearing this straight up and down skirt, you know, hollering whoopee, going to the whoopee parties and all that jazz. And 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 this strip, which uh, was, was a strip that came much after that time, but it was during the whoopee party days, apparently, this strip had an enormous picture of the aftermath of a gigantic party. And you could see feet and guy. Oh, it was just, you know, it was just terrible. You, and he did all kinds of wild things. Like, for example, you saw a coat hanging over a, a doorknob, you know, this was a closet. It was just hanging on the doorknob. And somebody had torn one of the sleeves off. <laughs> you can just imagine what a fantastic party it must have been. You know, just wild. And all over it, you know, hanging down from the chandeliers and from the lights and from the lamps were this long strip paper. You know those paper, those paper strips that you see in the movies starring Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers when they have the big party scene, when everybody's throwing the paper and blowing the horns, and those long strips of pink paper and blue paper unroll. Well, you could see this paper hanging all over the whole scene. Now, m the reason I remember this so vividly is that my mother cut it out of, a, of the paper, and she hung it on my old man's door. She hung it on the door there, you see. And this came out the day after they had been to a gigantic party. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, it just made a tremendous impression on me. They were always going to these enormous parties. Now, what comic strip was that? I, I, I'll have to give you one more word of, one more word of, uh, I suppose you might say, clue. That the major character was a minor character. The major character in the strip today was a minor character in the strip in those days. Well, there are two major characters in the current strip that is still running. And one of them is still major. But the other one was a minor character in that same strip. 
And by the way, this party that they had was held in this minor character's house. And that was about the time he was starting to become important in the strip. No, it was not Lord Plushbottom. They never went for that kind of stuff. No, no. Uh, in fact, I'll give you one more clue. One of the major characters in those days in this strip was called Hi-Ho. Hi-Ho. He was the boyfriend of the major character who's still around. No, it was not Winnie Winkle. Hi-Ho. And by the way, the guy, the guy who is now the other major character in the strip, in those days, was considered a fantastically foppish rich man's son. Dagwood, that's right. That's right. It was Dagwood Bumstead. And in, in those days, Dagwood Bumstead came from this very rich family, and he was a complete fop and a complete fool. He was, he was kind of like a comic character, and he was, they were always poking fun at him because he was so rich and so uh, effete. Uh, he was Dagwood Bumstead. And Blondie, of course, was the name of the strip. Her boyfriend, this was before she was married, <laughs> and, and her boyfriend's name was Hi-Ho. And uh, he was always playing a banjo and yelling and hollering, and you see the feet. And, and that, that gigantic picture of the whoopee party was the entire strip. Now, that strip was very different the way it is today. Now it's all, you know, family life and all that stuff. But boy, not in those days. <laughs> I mean, not at all. In fact, uh, Blondie was considered a, a, a real, uh, well, uh, how shall I put it? She was a forerunner to a lot of stuff Playboy's been talking about for a long time now, actually. She was a blondie. And uh, she was, in a way, the comic strip version of uh, people like Ann, uh, not Ann Southern, uh, what's her name? Yeah, Ann Southern. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Joan Blondell. Those characters ran through the movies. In fact, it was always, there was always a character in, in the bad movies in those days that somebody called roughly Blondie. And her name was Ann Southern, or it was Joan Blondell. And she was wearing blonde hair all the time with a fur coat. You remember, you see these on the old, old movies now. And they're always saying, boop, boop, a doop. Or they're yelling uh, something like, uh, how about another drinky? How about a little drinky, huh? <laughs> and, and that was the Blondie character. And Blondie, in those days, was a comic strip version of that type of character. She always had champagne bubbles over her head, by the way. She was continually lapping up the soup. But it was, you know, champagne all the time. And she was running around with this guy named Hi-Ho. Hi and then that terrible day when she married Dagwood W. Bumstead. Incidentally, how many of you remember Dagwood W. Bumstead's middle name? This is trivia for you. Oh, yes, this is the way to have 1967 go come in and 66 go out. Oh, don't forget now, gang. Tomorrow, Plainfield. We'll see you on Front Street in the book house in Plainfield. And we are going to be at, that's tomorrow at 4, and that we are going to be here, let's see, where? On New Year's Eve. We're going to be on the air, live and big and spanking as a bird, coming to you from the limelight. So hang in there. And I wonder whatever happened to Hi-Ho, by the way. Hi-Ho never made, he's never made a comeback in the Blondie and Dagwood strip. Although Dagwood shows a little sign once in a while of having lived a previous life before he married. Oh, well. A long trail of winding.